We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 141. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss tech for wannabe archaeologists. What skills do you really need to level up your career? Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. Paul, how's it going? I'm doing okay this week. I think last time I was on, I was having a really, really hectic, rough couple of weeks, and it wore me down, and I think it showed in the way I was talking, but despite this haven't been the election week. I'm actually in much better spirits than I should be. <laughs> How are you doing now, Chris? You're still out on the East Coast, right? I am indeed. I'm in a, well, I think it was a battleground state of North Carolina. I actually have completely checked out of the election stuff. For those listening in real time, we're two days post the non-election. And so it's November 5th and nothing's been decided yet. And there's still some some big questions left up in the air. And mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just hanging out over here in North Carolina. And surprisingly, the state I came from is Nevada, and it's coming down to the vote in Nevada, yep. coming down to the wire at this point. So I hope that as you're listening to this podcast, we actually have an answer to who the president of the United States is. But there's a chance that we don't. <laughs> so hopefully that question's been answered. So anyway, yeah, it's been a rough week media wise, but let's have fun talking tech and podcasts. So, Paul. I just want you to relay how you came to this question that, that is bringing our attention to this topic today. Okay. So this morning on my way into work, I was listening to the CRM podcast, which I enjoy quite a bit. You guys have really good kind of panel discussions, a lot of different kinds of experience, different countries, different levels of CRM archaeology, and you, and you bring all that wealth of experience probably well over 100 years between all of you Could be. into the discussions. And the discussion was centered around why you do CRM. And mm -hmm. that's an interesting question to me because as you well know, and as our listeners would know, I've been working for 20 years now in ed tech and I am done with it. <laughs> I can't stand being on Zoom 24-7. I can't stand the kinds of stress I'm dealing with right now. And frankly, 2020 has worn me out. It started out back in January with the death of my son, mm -hmm. who went to the school that I work at. And daily, I'm reminded of his loss of his absence. And that's just too much for me. One of the reasons why I was in ed tech is because I needed to earn a living to support my family. Right. My wife's got a good job, but frankly, the museum world doesn't pay that much. So I was our primary breadwinner. My daughter is 19. She's a sophomore in college. She's actually said, okay. And I was sticking around until my son graduated. Well, he's never going to graduate there. So I want to get back out and get back to my true interest which is archaeology. And so I don't know, I think I'll probably never get back into academic archaeology, at least not in the way that one time I dreamed of being a professor, but I can certainly see myself getting back into CRM. Um, on the older side, for uh, somebody getting into CRM, I'm 51 this year, I wouldn't be able to do it until my contract expires next summer, I'd be 52. But fortunately, I'm not carrying all sorts of injuries like a lot of people <laughs> are once you've been doing archaeology <laughs> and you're my age. So when I first got into ed tech, what I'd done is I parlayed my archaeology tech skills into ed tech. Right. Things with databases, things with mapping, just a general kind of way about problem solving and working in groups of people, explaining things, all these sorts of things that, that, that really transitioned seamlessly from archaeology into ed tech. And now what I'm thinking is that I want to do the exact opposite. I want to take my 20 years of ed tech experience and transfer them back into archaeology. Now, my main experience is tech of all sorts of various kinds of programming, of databases, of networking, you know, on down the line. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking back to the question from the CRM podcast was, why do you get into it? Why? What attracts people to it. I thought a secondary question to that is, say you are attracted to it. It doesn't matter why, but say you really like archaeology and you want that to be your career. You're a year out of college, two, 10, 
35 or <laughs> many years out of college <laughs> and you want to put something on your application that looks good. Not looks good just for its own sake, but looks good because you value it and you want your employer or potential employer to want to bring you on board. So what kinds of technologies would behoove somebody early career to be able to know to be facile with, to be able to discuss intelligently and use effectively. And how would that help them get a job going forward into CRM? And then maybe we can transition this talk you know, in the next segment into what would you do if you're already in CRM and you want to level mm -hmm. up, you're a little tired of maybe the, the field tech and you want to have a more desk-based job, what kinds of things you could do? So I have a whole bunch of ideas and they're just ideas. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to pick your brain, Chris, mm -hmm. because you have a lot of experience with this. <laughs> yeah. So if you had somebody that was fresh faced, but eager and want, they want to impress themselves, what would you see on that resume in terms of tech skills that would get them a second look from you? That's a really interesting question because I, I kind of put tech skills into two categories, mm -hmm. basic tech skills that I consider basic in 2020, mm -hmm. whereas other people may not consider basic, but I'm more of a tech forward company. So, you know, there's that. And then also nice to have tech skills, bonus tech skills, things that we may or may not use, but could expand on. And, and given your knowledge of maybe this field or industry or, or course of study allows you to be flexible and know other things. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I would step back just a half second and say, if you still dream of becoming a college professor, man, you. I don't see how that's not on the table, to be honest. Um, I think in the right atmosphere and the right the right position, you know, you, you didn't take the same path as some other people. And, and I know in some schools, in some areas, that's a pretty tough road to go down. There's a lot of competition, but I think there's also a lot to be said for experience and, you know, just that whole avenue. So mm -hmm. who knows what that would look like, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put it off the table. I've done some adjuncting, so I have some experience with it, but yeah, yeah well, that's a different discussion. <laughs> Yeah, but also bringing, bringing these things to the table, all these skills would also fit over there too, because mm -hmm. man, how many people do you know of a certain age, which is basically, you know, what I'm getting to, what you're getting to, and you know, all that, that just have zero tech skills. You know what I mean? Right. Like they yeah. always rely on 20 year olds and, and to come in and be able to have this experience and, and actually teach people these things and get them thinking, which is the whole point of college would be phenomenal to me. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. So basic tech skills. I mean, I, I want to go down to just, can I hand you a tablet and not tell you what kind of tablet that is and have you be able to use it? I don't know how you put that on a resume. I really don't. Other than saying you were born after 2005, but I don't know. <laughs> How, <laughs> and that's, so if you weren't born after 2005, how do you put that on a resume, right? How do you relay that? Because to me, that is a basic skill these days. I've seen very few people in the past couple of years, let's say, that don't have a smartphone. And even people who are like self-proclaimed, not very tech friendly, like I break everything I touch that's electronic, they still have a touchscreen smartphone, right? Like that is just basic right. hardware these days. So you should be able to run something like that. You should be able to not have a problem with that. And then tablets. I've handed people tablets this year and had them look at me with like wide-eyed expression on their face. And people who have been doing archaeology 10 years, I hand them a tablet and they're just like, I don't, I've never used one of these before. I'm like, Ugh. really? Wow. How? How can you even say that out loud without just kind of faking it and then figuring it out. <laughs> like, why would you just tell me that first off? So I think I, I put that into basic tech skills. And then of yeah. course your, your standard internet browsing skills and, and, you know, cause a lot of research is done online these days. In fact, I would almost say like 90% of research is done online these days because a lot of things are accessible online now that you didn't used to be and being able to navigate that in a savvy way without wasting time and going down too many rabbit holes is a skill in and amongst itself, you know? So that, that's where I'll start. Yeah. Well, the tablet one is interesting to me because I've seen that actually on a lot of resumes that we've looked at over the years for hiring people, again, to ad tech, not to archaeology, where they say, you know, sure. basic Windows troubleshooting, comfortable with OS 10, Windows, iOS, and Android, basic Android troubleshooting, you know, things like that. But you're talking about basic comfort using, not necessarily basic comfort troubleshooting, which is something that somebody would highlight in a resume that I would see. Sure. So I'm not quite sure how that would be put down. Would it be weird to you if you saw somebody say, I'm comfortable with X, Y, and Z operating systems? 
No, I would absolutely appreciate it. In fact, I have it on my resume. I said mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with iOS and Android operating systems. I'm not as familiar with Android, but I stay up on the space, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm savvy enough that I can figure it out if I'm handed one. And, and I have that on there. And I have, I think it's still on there. I have a specific category for tech skills. And I have on there proficient in Apple and Microsoft operating systems, mm-hmm. you know, because right. you never know. Right. And I just, I figured that was something and I've had that on there for, I don't know, eight, nine years at least. Yeah. I think I've had something very similar on mine. I may have said maintenance and troubleshooting or setup yeah. and troubleshooting slightly different words because again, my job is slightly different. It's not an end user. It's also, you know, troubleshooter and fixer and teacher of other people. But yeah, it's always been in there kind of as a gimme category at the end of my resume. Not that I've used my resume in 20 years, but you know what I mean? I do keep it updated. You put it together. Yeah, there you go. And and I'd be careful with language too, depending on who you are. A lot of people will say, fake it till you make it. And that's only true if you can actually make it, right? Or if you can actually fake it effectively enough to convince others. I mean, you only have to really fake it long enough to either get through the work and actually do a good job because there's that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, this still is a small field. You don't really want to burn any bridges because you're actually a dumbass and you couldn't figure it out, right? So if you say, I know how to do this thing and they present you with a challenge that you immediately don't know how to do, well, that's a problem. I know you have to know who you are, though. If you're the kind of person that can jump online, watch a few YouTube videos and figure it out and do it in a way that they're happy with, then great. There's no real reason to just to bring that up. You just added a new thing to your skill set. You're fine. But you have to have the integrity and the knowledge of your own self to know when you say, listen, I don't know how to do this. And I think I would appreciate if somebody told me that rather than just really screwing it up before they went too far down the line. Gotcha. If they just got too far, like I just had this experience, I'll just say in 2020, I was working with somebody on a project that was supposed to be doing stuff with WildNote and turns out they didn't. And they didn't let us know that on this, on this project that we were on, there's a bunch of people involved. They didn't let us know that they didn't really get what we were saying every single day until it was honestly too late. And turns out they were recording everything on paper. And now somebody has to go through and transcribe everything they did because they were not willing to admit that they just didn't understand the fundamentals of what we were talking about. Just kept nodding along in meetings and saying, yep, yep, yep. We'll do this and this and this. And then nothing, right? At some point, you just got to admit it. And this isn't, this wasn't even a newbie archaeologist. This is somebody who, in every other respect of the word, is a fantastic archaeologist, you know, really gets the theory, gets everything else, done a lot of work, worked all over the place, been in this for years, but was presented with something new, didn't understand it, and didn't speak up about it. And that's worse than, you know, that's worse than screwing it up as far as I'm concerned. You need to speak up when you don't know. Uh, that's similar. One of my good friends, one of my best friends, the first time we went in the field together, it was with one of the grand old men in Near Eastern archaeology. Mm-hmm. And my friend said, ask questions. Don't ask too many. Shut up. Watch him. <laughs> and every time you get confused, ask a good question and you're really going to learn a lot. Now, that's a very particular thing because it had to do with that particular professor's very prickly personality and what he expected of students and such. But I do think that it, it gets to a bit of what you're saying is the ability to know your limits and also still push them, right? And the ability to know how to push them in the right way, right? So we were talking before we started recording about being lifelong learners. And I think that's one of the big, big bonuses of our field is, you know, regardless of whether you're coming at it from the contract archaeology or from the academic side is that we tend to be lifelong learners. I think that was something that was probably not Mm -hmm. mentioned in that CRM archaeology podcast episode. But one of the things I'm sure that keeps people coming back, even though they, you know, get stung by scorpions and get hypothermia and sunburns and all of the above is that they love just learning. We all just love learning. Yeah. So we keep on doing it. So I think knowing how to learn, knowing how to, like you said, Google the right thing so you can get the YouTube video that tells you how to use a piece of software in a particular way is actually a quite a valuable skill. I don't know how you say that on a resume. We just interviewed somebody for our job that didn't have a very deep resume in terms of his skills, but we decided to hire him because he came across extremely positive about his ability to just keep learning. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's an interpersonal sort of thing to convey that that willingness and to convey that ability. And we hope we're right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. The, the, the willingness to do it, I think, is the important thing. If you don't, if you're not willing to keep on learning, to keep on experimenting, to keep on trying something new, you're not going to be able to to fake it until you make it. 
because you're not even at that first step. And speaking of first steps and trying to figure out how to evaluate these things, because I've actually I've actually agonized over that just a, a little bit. And I mean, I guess luckily for me, I haven't really had to hire somebody that I didn't know. Mm-hmm in a long time, right? It's been a while. I've worked with other people I didn't know because they worked for other companies that I was contracting with and I didn't have any choice over that matter. But I haven't had to hire anyone I didn't know in a really long time. But I feel like now if I were to do that, and this may be advice to people, especially in an era where, and this is this is probably going to run into the 2021 field season as we're hiring people for the field season, is we might be doing remote interviews, right? And a lot of archaeologists like to do their interviews over the phone. They just, And it's not even an interview half the time. You're just calling to offer them the job. But I feel like we should be interviewing and we should be calling and saying, at least for field techs, for other positions, there might actually be an interview. But for field techs, you're often just hired off of your resume and they might call some references, but you're, you're basically hired off of that. But otherwise... I feel like we should be making those calls and we should be making them a Zoom call or a Skype call or whatever. And then we need to craft some sort of online task and not couch it in those terms, but something that the that the person has to do where they share their screen and you see them do stuff because that's going to tell me two different things if I do this right. First off, it's going to tell me how they work under pressure because I'll tell you what, I have to demo software and do things, not, not only demo software, but actually build stuff for people on my screen while I've got, you know, I just, it happened every day this week where I've got anywhere from two to 20 people on the call that are watching my screen and watching me make mistakes. I'm okay with that. I'm not perfect. I'm going to hit the wrong button occasionally. I'm just going to move on and hit another button. <laughs> so, and just be like, sorry, folks, sometimes you hit the wrong key and I'm okay with that. And my comfort level with that, I think comes over and it comes across to them. And I want to see that from an applicant, right? I want to see that when I say, first, share your screen, and then I want you to go to this website. And it's little things for me. And this might be nitpicky, Paul, and I'm interested in your opinion, maybe in the next segment. But when I tell you to go to a certain website and you click up into the URL, and the first thing you do is hit the delete key, I know that you're not aware of the fact that you can just start typing because Mm -hmm. it's already highlighted, right? That's just one little thing that I feel like I've learned along the way that, that lifelong learners will pick up and will gain those tiny little pieces of information that just make our lives easier. And when somebody doesn't know that tiny little piece of information and it's not habit for them to do that, that tells me a lot about how they learn and how they look at the world and how they look at all these little tasks. So that's probably a lot to unpack, but we're at the segment. So we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing, and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 141. And we are talking about tech skills. And coincidentally, we got a 500 error right as we transition segments. I don't even know what a 500 error is, but talk about tech skills. All I did was restart and it worked again. Luckily, that one was easy to solve. <laughs> I know what a 500 error is. It's a uh, server error and we got a little ah. Nginx warning from it. So somehow you must have refreshed that page wrong. 
<laughs> I must have refreshed it wrong. That's right. Yeah, you confused the server. I probably did. You know, I've got a funky command key and I always use command R as my refresh. Mm -hmm. And I think my command key is sticking and my that actually could have caused it possibly. I'm not really sure. So, well, anyway, that's really getting off the rails here. So let's keep talking about things. I feel like in the first segment, we, we covered your basic, like it's 2020, get with the program sort of skills. Right. You know, you're, you, you should know how to do these things. And so let's, let's maybe talk about a few more I don't want to say high level stuff because it really it really isn't. It's like we talk about digital archaeology on a few episodes and when are we going to drop the digital because all archaeology is digital, right? Well, I feel like databases is approaching if not has already surpassed that sort of level. If you don't understand databases and really understand like relational databases and how all that puts together and at least how to use one and enter data and extract data from one hmm. and get that then I mean maybe you can't build one to the best of your ability because I don't know, a database architect, that's kind of an art form. It really is oh, yeah. Yeah, to, to get those things to work right. Yeah. Paul, you're, you're the database guy amongst the both of us. I'm, I'm of the level where I can work with a database. I can mm -hmm. do it. But if, I, if we were to both ask to put together something like a relational database, yours would far exceed anything I could put together. It's just not something I've got a lot of experience with. So what are your thoughts on what people need to know regarding these kinds of things in order to be marketable these days? Okay, I'm going to roll this back just a little bit because a lot of people, the entry to databases is spreadsheets. Oh, yeah. Right. A spreadsheet, well structured, well used, and populated properly is a database. It's not necessarily a relational database unless you're doing a lot of VLOOKUPs, which is programming into the database, which is another order, you know, higher order skill about using the databases. But I see so, so many spreadsheets that people produce that are utter crap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there was actually, there was a really good discussion. I think it was, well, I was on Twitter the other day. It was pointing to a Medium article or some such about using spreadsheets how to how to populate them properly and there's some very simple rules about you know make every column one particular type of entry make every mm -hmm. row one particular set of recordings be it a site be it assured be it whatever you know so that, that way you can you can order and you can sort and you can sum and you can you can do the simple mathematical problems on your spreadsheet very easily and mm -hmm. i bring this up because a lot of people use relational databases as backends for bigger data collection issues, right? For the backend for a website where things are happening very dynamically, very quickly, or because they're entering it into a company database where every transaction of a certain type, every entry, like I just said, site or shirt or whatever, has to be collected centrally so that it can be analyzed across, however, dividing across, across sites, across projects, across whatever. But a lot of people's entry to it is spreadsheets, and they don't really realize that they're using spreadsheets as databases. And so then they make a whole bunch of really bad decisions. <laughs> so I would say that actually knowing how to use a spreadsheet is very important. One thing, if I ever see you use colors in a spreadsheet, not to highlight things, but as some meaningful entry, stop it. Green doesn't mean anything. Make another column and say checked in or, you know, verified or something, you know, don't say green yeah. means it's, it's okay. It, green means nothing. And you can't sort by the color green. Do you mean people are using green instead of like words or as a conditional formatting where green indicates a status? They're just actually highlighting the cell green? Yeah, no, no. So green indicating a status is fine, provided that I've checked that. You know, so if we're dealing with like laptops coming in <laughs> now, back to the ed tech example, the computer has been returned to us at the end of the school year. Make that line yeah. go green because you see it. It highlights it and you go green. Green means go. It's good. Yeah. Same letter, G. <laughs> but it's triggered by that column off to the right that says, this student returned the laptop. Yeah, yeah. Right? So if I want to see all the ones where the student returned, I can sort by that, you know, column G or whatever it is over there. And the reason why this came up, it's been coming up in my archaeology and computer science type Twitter quite a bit lately, is that a couple of weeks ago, there was a case in the UK where... For some reason, they decided to use Excel as the back end for a major data collection process for <laughs> COVID cases in the UK. Oh my God. And the yeah. Brainiac that put this together, instead of making each entry a new row, made it a new column. Oh, my God. <laughs> and there's only a certain limit of columns that you can have in Excel. Yeah. So they lost a few days worth of their data. And this is, yeah, so... 
there's a gap in the data collection for COVID cases in the UK because of this screw up. And this highlights two things. And this is bringing it back to where you started with the relational databases. One is knowing how to use the tool effectively. You know, whoever mm -hmm. created this did not use Excel in the right way. Secondarily, they're not using the right damn tool for the job. They should have been using a database, a real proper relational database. It didn't have to be anything fancy, it sounds like. They could have used some off-the-shelf access or MySQL or something. They didn't have to go to Oracle for this or something big like that. But sure. they weren't using the right tool. So it was, you know, kicking the left nard, kicking the right nard. <laughs> they did it entirely <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so in terms of, um, to bring this back to the discussion of, what I, as the hypothetical hirer, would want to see if I saw somebody giving me a spreadsheet of the kinds of work that they do, I'd want to know, I'd want to see a spreadsheet that is created in a way that is actually usable. It's not just a dump for data, but is a structured dump for data. Mm -hmm. And that structure is a really important thing because that's where you can do things with. And then from that point, it's very easy to transition to relational databases because relational databases in the broadest terms, are a whole bunch of spreadsheets that are linked together. Yeah. And so if each of them is structured and smart and intentional, you can link them together and then start asking all sorts of really complicated questions out of them. I'm not asking that you could necessarily write me a very complicated query with a lot of joins and such to it, but that you can do something simple with it and it's ordered and it's neat and it's tidy and it's sensible. So I can get the data out that you put in. So I think that, that somebody going through their early career, somebody studying in college, wanting to go into an archaeology career, would do really well to know both just how to use a spreadsheet properly and then take that knowledge and apply it to how to use a relational database. You can download MySQL for free, play with it, do any of a million of different little like online sort of tutorials with it for shopping carts and or employees at a, at a company. But once you get your brain around it, it, it just becomes second nature. It becomes like using any other tool that we're used to using, like using word processing tools. And I know we've discussed that before, mm -hmm. but the difference between people who put tab stop into the word processing document and those who just hit space until it more or less lines up really tells you a lot about their ability to comprehend how to use the tool. And also, if you want to get really geeky about it, really improves one's later ability to get data back out of that word processing document. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm going to go on lots of rants on these. Actually, I'll stop it right now. But I wonder, Chris, since you started out talking about databases, I see these tools, the spreadsheets, databases, and word processors as kind of the baseline. You better know this if you're going to be collecting data for me kinds of tools. Do you agree? Do you think that maybe I'm a little harsh on it because I've been doing it for so long? No, I think it's I think it's incredibly important to understand, to, to at least have a high-level understanding of how these things work, right? Because even though you might work for me and we're going to use WildNote out in the field, you might not have to know exactly how WildNote is put together. And, and I don't even know how the back end of WildNote is put together. I know it's a database. I know it's a relational database somewhere in the code. That's what this is being created as. And if you even know just that, you can start to understand how when you collect data and when you're searching for something and we're going, if it doesn't work the way you expect it, instead of getting frustrated, you're going to be like, oh, that's right. This is a database or a relational database. So why would it work that way? Right. I'm, I'm trying to go beyond the limitations of what this thing's actually designed to do because it's physically impossible. Or conversely, you'll know better how to use the software if you understand how, you know, how it works under the hood, basically. Mm -hmm. And as a as a side note, if you have access to HBO, just search for the episode of Silicon Valley, and I'm pretty sure it's just called Tabs versus Spaces <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> so, anyway, I, and I got a question for you, Paul, about databases because I feel like we say the word database almost as much as we say drone, and drink. we've and drink. We've never really like focused an episode on databases. And I don't think we really need to get into it now. But in the context of this discussion, this seems appropriate. By the way, DJI just announced the Mavic Mini 2, which I, know, I haven't seen yet. Sexy. Yes, I know. Very sexy. It's supposed to take more wind, which is really my only complaint with that thing. Mm -hmm. The 2.7K video is fine. Now it's 4K, even better. But I don't know. I digress. Anyway, databases. So 
when you've got a spreadsheet, well, first off, I feel like when you're trying to decide what you want to use for the data that you are collecting, you always need to think need to think at either the end of the project or if it's an ongoing thing, you need to think three years from now. Like Mm -hmm. the COVID case database or spreadsheet in the UK, they weren't thinking big enough. They weren't thinking, what are the limitations of the structure that I'm trying to impose on this thing Mm -hmm. before they got there? So many people start making something and realize too far in that they're using the wrong tool for the job, right? Whereas if you just had a little thought ahead of time, I, I literally have the discussion every day with clients when I'm working with this other software is I don't, I don't care what we're designing for now. I'm designing for you five years from now. Is this, is the tool we're putting together right now capable of handling the 600,000 records you're going to have in this system versus the five you have now, right? I mean, is that, that's what we need to be coding for here. Exactly. So so when you're looking at these things, I'm curious from your perspective, like I can put together a pretty complex spreadsheet in Excel and I can put other tabs in there and I can link to those tabs and, and, and do lookups from other tabs into the primary tab and do stuff like that. And I'm, I'm treading very closely onto relational database territory when I start doing that. But at what point do you think a project really should go to a database? And pretty much all databases are relational, right? Do we Can we drop the word relational? Am I wrong there? Again, this isn't my forte. Yeah, no, you're you're wrong because there's a whole there's a whole at least another major class. I mean, there are a few different kinds of databases, but there's another major class of databases: no SQL databases, non-relation things that uh, are geared towards, especially towards big data and towards web development. And these have taken off over the last five to maybe eight years. They don't work the way my brain works. So every time I play with them for a bit, I give it up they, because relational databases do in fact work the way my brain works. But what you're describing <laughs> is a multi-tabbed Excel spreadsheet that you're linking, you know, you're doing lookups from one tab to another. That is a relational database. It's mm-hmm. not that you're doing it in Excel versus MySQL versus PostgreSQL that makes it a relational database. It's how the data are structured and how you're linking those tables. Right. Okay. Right. It's the structure that matters, not the actual underlying tool. So there's no reason that you can't call that a relational database. Now, you said you're building out for, you know, 600,000 records or whatever you said uh, versus the five records you currently have. That actually yeah. brings up another related point, I think. And this is getting out of the, getting out of our original topic. But <laughs> there are two ways of thinking of that. One is let's get the biggest badass servers we can so that we can handle those humongous data sets. And the other is, let's build it so that it can be transitioned to those big badass servers Mm. to handle those humongous data sets. If you've built that one that takes the the 5, 10, 20 records that you've got, but it's smart, it's almost trivial to turn that into your Oracle database that lives on big iron. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you've built it wrong, you have to then rebuild it as something new when you go to the big database engine. So... One has to, you know, you build to the right scale in terms of like the the tools that you're using and in terms of the hardware and the software that you're using, but you build to that end goal that five, 10 years down the road in terms of your structure. Mm -hmm. That's where it really matters. So again, your Excel tables, your Excel spreadsheets that have multiple uh, sheets in them, that's fine. I could turn that into a, a MySQL database within, you know, 20 minutes. Yeah. And then put it online with a web front end and do whatever the hell else you're going to do to it. But that's because you built it right in the first place. Sure. Right. And so if somebody, to to bring it back around to what we were talking about, you know, kind of early career skills, if you understand that structure, how the structure works in your benefit, then going from your Excel spreadsheet to your relational database to showing the potential employer that you understand these whether or not you're actually working at that level of the data, you're working at the front end, at the wild node end, I think would be very useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's these migrating things from what you see in the world to what you've written on the uh, tablet to where it gets stored and then how that gets stored somewhere in the future. I think that if each step of those is done sensibly and systematically, it, it's not that tough of a process. And that kind of maybe even though I'm not doing a good job demystifying it here right now, I think that does demystify it. And that's maybe what I want to see. And this gets back to your thing about the URL bar. Is the computer this mystery box that does magic or is it a very sophisticated <laughs> tool that you you know you can use quite effectively? 
I think I'm going to invent a computer, just call it mystery box and people will buy it. <laughs> so there you go. No, I, I agree. And I, and I feel like to tidy up this discussion for segment two here, this discussion we've been having, and, and part of the reason I wanted to ask, ask you questions about databases is because if you've been listening along in this and you, and you couldn't hang, like we lost you at database, then that might be one sign that if you're either looking for a job right now or you want to transition into another job, because we always talk about, especially if we're if we're talking to archaeologists right now or more specifically CRM archaeologists, if you want to level up in your career and you want to stay in your career, then you need to learn new skills, right? And in fact, based on that episode 201 that we'll link to in the show notes that Paul, you referred to in segment one, I asked a question on a couple of Facebook groups that are that are huge with archaeologists. There's several thousand archaeologists in each one, very active. And I said, Listen, I posted the episode and I said, I'm curious about you guys. Why do you stay in this? And a lot of them said almost universally, listen, I was about to get out. I love the field. I love the history. I love doing the things, but I was about to leave because I just couldn't stand the job security. I couldn't stand all this. And what gave them more security? learning more skills, either going back to school or getting a certificate or literally just watching YouTube and learning new things and then putting those on their resume so they could be not only more marketable, but do different things. And maybe you're doing GIS one day and you're building a database the next day. Who knows? But you're doing different things and you're multi-skilled. You're not just you're not just doing the one thing and being a field tech, right? People right. think that, I mean, Realistically, that is one thing. You could know stuff about southeastern, northwestern, southwestern archaeology, but it's still the skill of being a field tech, right? And mm-hmm. there's lots of those. So you have to stand out. And if you couldn't hang with the discussion we just had, then, you know, that's room for concern. If you want to move up, you need to understand those things. So. All right. Well, let's continue this discussion and wrap it up on the other side of the break. I'm sure we have much more we can say because at some point we should actually mention, hey, some of the things besides all this stuff that you should know, maybe actual programs and stuff. We'll talk about it back in a second. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode number 141. Chris and I today are talking about tech skills that are useful to archaeologists, things that potential employers in particular would like to see on a resume, things that we'd like to see an applicant be comfortable with. And you left it at the end, Chris, this discussion we were talking about why people stay in the field. Actually, you guys were having that conversation over on the CRM podcast. And job security is a constant issue for contract archaeology. Yeah. And frankly, that's a big fear of mine as I give up a very secure job six months from now, 10 months from now, whatever it's going to be when my contract actually expires in order to go back into this. And so I was wondering if somebody was coming into your organization at a more senior level, or somebody was in an organization as a field tech, but they wanted to get a more secure, more year-round kind of job, what kinds of tech skills would behoove them? And so we wrote a whole list of different things. And I'm just going to shoot these at you, Chris. And I want to hear what your opinion is as to what you would like to see or what you think would be beneficial for somebody to to level up on if they wanted to get that extra job security in CRM in particular. So let's just start. I'm just going to run down the list. These aren't in any particular order, but these are various technologies, either specific technologies or kind of broader categories that we've discussed over the last few years that I've been co-hosting this podcast with you. So let's start with the one that's on everybody's mind in 2020, which is remote working. You put that on the list. What were you thinking? Why would that be something that you would want to see one of your employees be good at in order to get a leg up in the organization? 
Well, I mean, let's be honest, archaeologists in CRM have been remote working for decades, right? Because we're always away from the office. We're always working out in the field. And as you move up, I remember some of my first times, not necessarily in the Southeast, but when we went over to the Great Basin, we would often have to, and, and this was really more for this one specific company that we just worked for, my wife and I, when we first got there. Mm-hmm. But as crew chiefs, we would have to spend several hours at the end of each day compiling all the paperwork, doing a list of, you know, in this one case of a project, like isolated features and things. We had a lot of those because we were recording a massive district, but just basically writing down everything that we did and then scanning those pages and uploading them to the company's servers and then writing an email with all our findings at the end of the day sent off to the company. And that was excruciating first off. And one of the first places in CRM, I actually used my iPad. My wife was a crew chief. She had her crew. I had my crew. There were other crews. There was like six crews on this whole project. And I usually had all that work done about 30 minutes after we got back from the field and it was taking her two hours. We only had one iPad. I couldn't let her use my iPad because, you know, I was using it. That's not friendly. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying we're in different parts of the project. Like she's miles away from me. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. It's not like she was like standing right there. Hogging like, nope. it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not hogging it. And, and to be honest, it was brand new, right? The iPad had been out less than a year at that point, mm-hmm. and she just simply didn't know how to use it. And she was one of those people, she doesn't think this now, but early on, she's like, What am I ever going to use that for? What a useless piece of, you know, mm-hmm. it's a toy, right? It's a toy. So anyway. I think with remote working, it's involved with all of that. It's not just some stuff that I think you probably should put on your resume right now. It's like, I am proficient with Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and Google Meet. And if you don't know what any one of those are, like if you know one, but you don't know the other two, at least Google the other two and figure out what they are. Because I'll tell you what, I was not familiar with Microsoft Teams before this whole thing went down. And now I'm dividing my time every day between Teams and Zoom because some companies require Teams. And you might find that with larger organizations Mm -hmm. because now some companies are requiring Teams because A, not only do they already have a subscription to everything Microsoft, but Zoom has got a bad security reputation because of the first couple of months of the pandemic when some things got, in my opinion, a little bit overblown. But that's another discussion. So, So now I have to be proficient in Teams and I'm still not what I would consider up to speed. There's still some things I'm learning, but I went in and I really dug deep into teams and to figure out all the things I could do. I know how to blur my background, you know, do all those things that you should just know how to do. So that's in my mind, the biggest thing that needs to be highlighted on remote working. Do you understand cloud servers? Do you understand the remote working tools and interfaces that we have? Are you okay using something like Dropbox or Google Drive or company servers, wherever the case may be? I'm not really sure how you would articulate that. You'd probably just have to be specific, but noting those things on your resume would be a good 2020, 2021 thing to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I said, I'm going to just run through some things. I put programming on the list. You put remote working, I put programming because so much of my work revolves around that. Now, when I say programming, I've always divided it up into two kinds of separate categories. I think of like building out full-blown applications on one side, Mm -hmm. building complicated algorithms. That's one kind of programming. And that's what I think a lot of people think of as programming. But I mean it more in terms of what a lot of people would just call scripting. And that's where I've always been comfortable. I've never been a good programmer. I never will be a good programmer, but I program each and every day because I have various tasks that it's easier for me to you know, fire up awk or fire up Python and just do something simple in. Is that a valuable skill in CRM in general? The next one on the list is GIS which is something I think it might really pertain (laughs) to. But so let's leave the GIS department out of this discussion for the moment, just as a general skill. Would somebody that says that they know how to do some basic Java programming or some basic Python program or even basic, basic programming, would that be something that's useful? I think what that tells me is that when I'm hiring an archaeologist and they say they know that thing, this gets back into that thing we started off this whole podcast talking about, lifelong learners. It's somebody who's interested in how things work. You don't get into programming if you're not interested in either A, solving problems, or B, understanding how things work. Mm. Because sometimes you might just want to understand programming or you want to do it because you see a need for an app or something that 
can save time. Like you said, there's not a day that goes by that you can't just fire up and write a script or write a small piece of code to do some work for you, right? Mm -hmm. That is a a phenomenal skill that I don't have. I, I wish I had that skill and I simply don't have it. I don't, I understand enough to talk about scripting and what I could articulate. I need something to do. In fact, I mentioned that in the software implementation that I do. Mm-hmm. There are certain things companies need to do. I, I can speak intelligently enough about it to tell them what to do, but I don't know how to actually make that happen. <laughs> so, and, and that's fine with me. I don't need mm-hmm. to know all things, but I would be fascinated to hire somebody that not only had a passion for archaeology, otherwise you wouldn't be applying for this job, but you also have those abilities. And if we're working together and we see an opportunity come by, because archaeology is all about opportunities, if you want to diversify and stay in this field, if we see an opportunity to create something that might be beneficial to us as a company or beneficial to the field as a whole, I want the ability to discuss it intelligently with somebody and maybe even mock something up before we outsource it to the pros Mm. and say, this is what we were thinking. Let's get this going. So that would be a great skill. That outsourcing to the pros actually is something so well, I don't want to go down this track, but we've often discussed <laughs> about the kind of, it cuts two ways, but the problematic part of archaeologists and the building it yourself syndrome that we often have, yeah, you know, and not leaving it to the pros because, oh, I can do that because I took a class on it once or I'm a smart guy. <laughs> I know how to build the relational database that's going to run our company for the next 20 years yeah, or, you know, fill in the blank. You know, I don't need to get this off the shelf software to help me record in the field because I could build it myself. Sometimes that works, but more often than not, it's a failure. But I I hadn't thought of the programming, you know, in the way that we're discussing right here as a prototyping engine. Yeah. Right. Why not? Yeah. In the same way that we were just discussing spreadsheets as a prototyping engine for a more fully blown relational database, you could mock it up, say this is how it's supposed to work, even use it for those first five, 10 records. And if the structure makes sense and if the use case makes sense, you can then take that as the example to the big guys <laughs> and mm-hmm. say, Hey, yeah. can you build us this for real? We want to use it for the next five years. Right. Yeah. People that are savvy listeners of this podcast and other things that I've talked about know that I've gone down the app development road three times with archaeology. It's not an easy thing to do. I started making just entry forms using numbers on the first iPad where they Mm -hmm. had just like, you could make an entry form based on the fields in your spreadsheet. And so it was a quick data entry thing. That's the first thing I ever did with a tablet. And then I eventually found tap forms and started making forms there. You can do some pretty cool things with those. And then I actually had an investor and a partner and contracted an Indian development firm to build iOS and Android application for doing basically what WildNote is doing now. That failed because the money failed, but it was it was going pretty far. And I get a note from that guy every year saying, hey, still have this app. Are you interested? And I'm like, it's not my call. I didn't pay for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> But anyway, and then I went down the Codify road and that went its own direction. And now we're with WildNote and not a day goes by. I'm a consultant for WildNote now, so I'm, I'm less in that process, but because we built it out. Right. So now I'm a consultant. I do demos and things, but I'm in their Slack team. And I'm watching the developer channels in Slack and my God, the amount of work that is being done by a full-time staff of people, 20, 30 people working on just WildNote every single day of their lives as their career. And if you think you can build an app that your company's going to use, that's going to be sustainable after that first launch, you've got another thing coming. It's just (laughs) even a simple app, it's not going to work. You need to have pro support. You just do. So I just had to throw that out there. No, that's true. I I say it all the time, you know, do as I say, not as I do. We build programs all the time at work. Some of them don't get heavily used and get repurposed year after year and revamped and revised. Mm -hmm. But, oh boy, it's it's, it's a project. If we're in the middle of (laughs) doing a new method of registering for classes, for example, and there is no off-the-shelf software, so the primary web dev and I are both working on this, it's you know, it, it takes us out of commission for weeks or months on end from doing other things. They're fun projects. I love them. <laughs> but it's not necessarily the most efficient use, depending on how many people you've got on staff, depending on how big the company is and what the project is that, you know, the problem that you're trying to tackle. It's not by a long shot, not necessarily the most efficient way of going about things, doing it yourself. If you can mm-hmm. find something off the shelf that does, you know, 95% of what you need, uh, that might be the better way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you have access to the developers to help you get through that last 5%. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's one thing if it's Microsoft, it's a different thing if it's WildNote. Yes, very much. WildNote is a great software to use simply because you have access to the team and they're more than likely to listen to you because it's not something that's this huge ship that's hard to turn, you know, and it's good to find software like that. That's maybe, I don't want to say new and untested because WildNote's certainly been tested, but, you know, something that's in that still that smaller phase where you can, you can have a voice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I mentioned GIS <laughs> kind of in passing in the last one here with uh, programming. And every job ad I see now for CRM has some mention of yeah. GIS in it. So th- this is probably a no-brainer. And I would think that anybody who's coming through an archaeology anthropology program with a focus on CRM is going to have some exposure to GIS. Sure. But say you came through before GIS became quite as prevalent as it currently is, in my case, but fortunately... For me, I, I dug into it early. <laughs> or say you you haven't had the chance to use it in a number of years. How do you think one would? Again, my my, my base assumption here is that this is something that a hire wants to see, even if you're not going to be in the yeah. GIS department. Yeah. How would you get some skill in GIS? What would you do? What would you recommend somebody do? I'll recommend what I'd like to see, because if I'm hiring for the GIS department, obviously you're going to be GIS heavy, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to at least have a certificate. You're going to have demonstrable knowledge, something. I'm degree focused for certain things, but when it comes to GIS, I don't necessarily need to see a certificate for that department, but we're talking about outside the department. So mm-hmm. what I think people need to understand these days is you need to be able to speak the lingo, because even if you're not a GIS professional, I'm not great at GIS either, but I'm proficient enough to just do the things I need to do. Mm-hmm. If I needed to do some really fancy things, I'd have to spend some time researching how to do that. And I use QJS for a lot of things. But even if you have access to Esri software, there is, I mean, I hate to say YouTube, but there's plenty of stuff out there that just like has amazing tutorials for how to do things. And like any complicated software, don't just watch one video. I mean, watch one video, you go try to do it, but understand that there's probably 65 different ways to do the thing you want to do. Right. And there might be a better solution for that workflow. But from a standpoint of somebody who's not being hired for the GIS department, I would expect you to be able to discuss GIS in an intelligent way. If I say shape, line, and polyline or poly gone to you and you don't know what I'm talking about, or I say layer, or I say, you know, raster, uh, attribute table, raster, something like that. And you don't understand what I'm talking about. How are you going to discuss your project with the GIS department? Mm-hmm. How are you going to articulate your needs? How are you going to articulate the issues you're having in the field with your GPS or your tablet or whatever you're using to record in a way that helps you communicate with that department? If you can't communicate with that department, you may as well not be doing it at all. So you don't have to be an expert, but you have to be knowledgeable enough to have the conversation. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I cut my teeth with grass GIS, which is yeah. a real pain in the ass to use. It's it's very <laughs> complicated, very old school software. We had a guest on earlier in the year, I think Isaac Ola, who'd done a number of modules add-ons for grass GIS, things that he programmed, I think primarily in Python, because that's the interface. And that's one way you can go. And that's kind of what bridges that gap between programming and GIS for me. But for the most part, people are using the Esri or QGIS. And what I've seen across all the different ones is that the, what you're just saying, the concepts, right? You know, if you know these basic terminology, it doesn't, it's not that difficult to then go from one system to another. You understand sure. how things work. You might not know what this particular function is called in the software you're using, but you're going to learn it like that. You know, it, It's going to come to you. So having that basic base level familiarity with the terminology and then tie it back into what we were saying before with spreadsheets and databases, know that you can use GIS as a database or as a front end to a database. <laughs> you can use it without a database of any kind. You can use it to make pretty maps and that's all good. But being at least not afraid of confronting that and reasonably conversant with it, even though the company that you're going to uses Esri and you've only ever used QGIS, it's just a slight level up, I think. Right. And not even level up. It's a transference of a set of skills from one domain to another, but they're the same, you know, <laughs> Yeah, from one product to another. It's like going between any two different word processors, I guess. Uh, if you want to tie it back to other kinds of software. Yeah, I might ask you one question that says, tell me three things GIS can be used for. If all you can come up with is map, you probably have to do some more research. 
Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So GIS is intricately tied with another technology that should be in everybody's tool bag at this point, GPS. Is there a way of leveling up in GPS? Well, I feel like we can probably even, given the length of this episode, kind of lightning around these last topics here because they're there's stuff that people need knowledge of, right? Again, mm-hmm. it's all about having the conversation just like GIS. So GPS, fundamental to archaeology, right? I mean, you're not going in the field without a GPS. And these days, literally everybody out there has one, right? Yeah, in their phone. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, in their phone. I mean, and when I first started, you know, however many years ago, usually only the crew chief had a Trimble and everybody else was just walking along with their compass. You know, and they lined you up and you, you went from there. Mm-hmm. But nearly everybody has a GPS in their phone that's adequate enough just to walk a line. And then if you don't have that, your company might even be handing you GPSs, right? Not everybody's getting a Trimble these days. These are still pretty expensive, but you might be getting a tablet. You might be getting a Garmin, something like that. But again, you need to be able to discuss the lingo, figure out if I hand you any GPS off the market, off the shelf, or or tell you to use an app, you should be able to figure out within probably 60 seconds how to mark a waypoint or how to find the UTM coordinates or how to, you know, do something like that. That should be fundamental knowledge that people have. I don't need to spend 30 minutes teaching you how to take a waypoint in the GPS. No, that makes sense. But to what extent do you think that's something that somebody levels up in partway through their career? Or at this point, is it just your expectation? Everybody that's done a single field school or you know worked for a single season as a grunt in the field already understands. Is it something that everybody's going to level up on? No, no, maybe not. And I really do want to just want to lightning round the last two real quick. Photography, mm-hmm. keep your feet out of it. Understand that straight lines are good. Just look at your edges. If that's all you take away from this. Get closer. Get closer. Yes, get closer. And then if you're, oh, hey, one real quick thing on photography. I got to say this. Yeah. iPhones in particular have a 1X, obviously that's regular, and then a 2X optical zoom, mm. not a digital zoom. Digital zooms start losing information. but Evil. They're evil, right? <laughs> yeah. But iPhones and probably other Android phones have a 2x optical zoom. And one way, if you're trying to get closer to your picture and you're sitting right over the top of it, and you're like, why is the shadow of my phone in the picture? Step back, use the 2x optical zoom. Don't zoom mm-hmm. in any farther. Nope. And your shadow's probably gone, right? You can stay back a little farther, get that shadow away, but still get the shot that you need. Yep. So, and then drones. Again, speak the language, understand what drones are and what they're useful for. If I'm hiring you for a high level position, you might need to hire somebody or work with somebody that is going to use drones and you need to know how to use that resource at your disposal. Don't say drones are a mystery to me. Learn it, figure out what they're used for. You don't necessarily have to be a drone pilot, but understand the lingo. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's the be all end all to all this tech we've talked about. Understand the lingo, have a at least a cursory knowledge of the situation enough to have an intelligent conversation, you know, or at least the beginnings of one. Yeah. And to bring it back to what you were discussing before, if you know a little bit of the lingo and you know how to Google, (laughs) you can find (laughs) out some more about the lingo and you end up on good results. I don't know, despite having been in ed tech for 20 years now, like I said, I don't know how well that basic skill is being conveyed to students nowadays. I've seen a variety when I teach uh, classes at the college level between students that are very good at using just a couple search terms and cluing right in on a topic and those that don't really know how to use that and end up with all sorts of garbage that they got on Google that doesn't really pertain or is not actually true. But knowing the lingo being an active learner and then being able to kind of feed that back through to get good data, good information that you can then apply or at least read about so that you can be moderately conversant. That all seems to be very sensible and very doable for anybody that wants to seriously be in the field. Because, you know, again, we're all active, lifelong learners if we want to be around this. Yeah. Indeed. Well, good episode, Paul. Nice topic. I like it. If you guys got any other suggestions for things we need to talk about or you want to come on the show, let us know. Our contact information are in the show notes at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech. You can email me, Chris, at Archaeology Podcast Network to get the main Archaeology Podcast Network interface there. And if you go to the Archaeotech page, there's a schedule and interview link. So you can just jump right into our calendar without talking to us. So beautiful. (laughs) I know, right? It's perfectly, it's seamless. Yeah, there you go. Or you might be contacted by our producer, Jamie, who is contacting people to, to bring them on the show. So hopefully take a look out for that. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. This has been great. 
Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And if you're thinking of not wearing your mask or not washing your hands, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Wear your mask, wash your damned hands. I'm tired of this. Just because the election's over doesn't mean COVID is over. No, COVID's still going strong. It's going to be really a lot of fun when we go into winter. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Fun isn't scare quotes. (laughs) Scare quotes. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.